0: welcome to the dr Bubbs performance podcast
1: giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance he's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and
0: coaches here's your host dr Bubbs. hey everyone welcome back to the dr Bubbs performance podcast evidence-informed practical based this is season two episode number 11 and today i have the pleasure of interviewing renowned sleep expert and consultant to professional sports teams in all four major sports, the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and NHL, Sherry Ma. In this episode, Sherry dives into the physiology of sleep, talks about her early work at Stanford on sleep and collegiate athletes. She'll discuss how sleep is impacted by early mornings and before major competitions, as well as her work in professional sport on the impacts of traveling east to west and west to east on performance in the NFL, why pro baseball teams are sleeping in during spring training this year. She'll also discuss the NBA nap and her schedule alert predictions with ESPN's Back to Homes, as well as sharing her key tips to support athlete sleep, as well as a little glimpse into her own wind down routine. Phenomenal, phenomenal insights here from Sherry and a great example of using the evidence base and her research to inform her decision-making. And then being really nimble and agile with how she delivers that information, you know, to athletes in practice really, really impressive stuff here. If you're interested in more on practitioners working in pro and high level athletes space, then be sure to circle back and check out season one, episode number 18 with Dr. Charlie Weingroff, as well as season one, episode number 29 with former LA Lakers head strength and conditioning coach, Tim DeFrancesco for training, recovery, and nutrition insights. As usual, I link to the papers discussed here with Sherry at drbubscom forward slash podcast, as well as my layups, the quick actionable summary. Okay, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is highly bioavailable, has been shown in research to enhance stamina by stabilizing blood glucose levels during exercise, as well as strengthening immunity by buffering exercise induced reductions in key immune markers. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by informed sport and informed choice check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, on to the show. Enjoy. My guest today is Sherry Ma, a research fellow at the University of California, San Francisco's Human Performance Center and advisor to elite athletes and professional sports teams in the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and NHL on sleep and performance. Sherry, thanks so much for taking the time today.
1: Thanks for having me
0: listen, can we kick things off a little bit by giving folks a bit more background on yourself and how you got into uh, sleep research?
1: Sure. So I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. I went to Stanford University for my undergrad, and that's when I first met the father of sleep medicine, Dr. William DeMent, and he's been a very dear mentor to me the last 15 years. I then stayed to do my master's and stayed on board for a part-time for a number of years after that. And I guess being in Silicon Valley, you enjoy wearing several different hats. So I got involved with some sleep technology startups. Um, And then also that led to opportunities with some industry partners. So particularly I've been Nike Sleep Advisor the past several years. And then along the way, obviously, we recognized that there was a number of host teams that probably could utilize integrating some of the research and, and understanding around sleep in application with their athletes. And so the last ooh, eight years or so, I've been a sleep specialist for professional teams in the NBA, NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball, and really that's been a lot of the fun application side of how do we translate what we study in the laboratory and the science and research into application in a definitely non-ideal environment Absolutely, <laughs> um, and the challenges with these elite athletes. So that's sort of the different hats I wore, and then as a later career decision, I went back for medical training. So I'm finishing my MD in two months um, at the University of California, San Francisco. So for the last couple of years, the UCSF Human Performance Center has been my home. Uh, It's more biomechanics and exercise physiology lab, but that's been where my research has been based the last couple of years.
0: Fantastic. Well, sounds like you're very busy, which is which is terrific. Um, and maybe we can start this conversation off around you know sleep and performance with maybe giving listeners a little bit more background on just the physiology of sleep. Um, so maybe the differences between you know REM and non-REM sleep architecture. Could you fill us in on on some of the uh, fundamentals there in terms of physiology?
1: Sure. So sleep basics on physiology. We go through different sleep stages during the nighttime, And we, you know, it's termed N1, N2, which is more the lighter sleep. And then you have N3, which is more deep sleep. Then you go into what's called rapid eye movement sleep. And that's about 25% of the night. And that's when dreaming occurs the most. This whole cycle happens usually 90 to 120 minutes but it can vary during the nighttime and the thing is that the 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 percentages of each of these stages of sleep can change. So for example, you actually get more of that deep sleep earlier in the night and that's actually the most restorative. That's when you have muscle repair and growth hormones are released. And then towards the earlier morning hours, you have more percentage of that cycle in rapid eye movement sleep. And that's when dreaming happens. And that's been implicated to be critical for learning and memory consolidation. So, that's what's happening as you go through each stage during the nighttime, and depending on how long you're allowing yourself to sleep or wake up, you'll get through a number of these different cycles.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating stuff in terms of, uh, you know, what's going on in these different stages, and I know a lot of uh, Dr. Matt Walker's work in terms of describing what's going on even within REM sleep, which you, you mentioned there in terms of consulting information, just really, really fascinating stuff. And, you know, from a 30,000-foot view, if, again, we take this real general approach, you know, why is sleep so fundamental to human health before we even dig into the performance side of things?
1: Sure. I, you know, this is a fascinating process that clearly I've been intrigued with for a number of years. But it's this process that, you know, has really been ingrained in our DNA for eons, right? Indicating that we know that this is an absolutely necessary process for our health and wellness, But I also find it so fascinating that nowadays we, like, intentionally cut this process short, right? And we, like, rob ourselves of this recovery process and try to find all these ways to hack this, like, fundamental need. Um, But to get to your question, how is this affecting us? You know, sleep really has multifaceted effects. We know it affects cognitive performance. So particularly for athletes, I think about how does it impair reaction time or attention? We know it can impact decision-making and, like, sound judgment, or from a physiology standpoint, we know that it can impair metabolism, slow that down. It has effects on hormonal regulation. So for athletes are so thinking about appetite uh, regulation, it can then have an effect on testosterone. Um When we think about immune function, we're more susceptible with inadequate sleep to infection, even as much as like the common cold. And then when you think about physical performance, depending on the studies and the different types of outcomes, um, there have been studies to suggest that there are physical decrements that can occur with inadequate sleep.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's incredible, obviously, you know, what doesn't it impact is this really the question. And it's so profound. And of course... We know today that people don't get enough sleep, and athletes still don't get enough sleep, even despite all of uh, all the great work and your great work. So, can we maybe start off with some of your earlier work in sleep and, and sleep extension in, in athletes when you were at Stanford University?
1: Sure. So, this is something that I somewhat fell into and um has become the area where I focused most of my research the last couple of years. But back at Stanford. I'm probably dating myself now. In 2002, we were doing a study that was looking at sleep extension in undergraduate athletes and simply looking at, hey, does this potential intervention, extending sleep more than your regular habitual sleep, could that be an intervention in which there might be daytime benefits and and daytime performance um, uh, benefits? And we looked at this in undergraduates. By chance, there were some swimmers in the study. And that's sort of when the light bulb went off my head because they walked into the lab one day and had these like huge grins on their face. And they said, you know, Sherry, I just set a couple of personal records in my last swim meet. (laughs) <laughs> and even though we know that we're looking at cognitive performance here you know that's nice, nice really side benefit
0: was,
1: yeah exactly it was this aha moment right and I was just so fascinated with it because we recognize that so many undergraduate students are very sleep deprived that's obviously uh, we all probably for sure. those days <laughs> and so fast forward a little bit to my master's that's when I said you know let's really repeat this study and look at sleep extension in specifically athletes. I have access to phenomenal Division One athletes at Stanford. And the basketball team was uh, the first that I specifically asked to study this in. And, you know, we got back some pretty astounding results where we saw that over the course of the season, multiple weeks of extended sleep resulted in 9% improvement in their free throws and their Three-point shots, and they were able to sprint faster. The response times were faster, and I think, you it's know, incredible. it's not too groundbreaking that maybe sleep more, sleep better, you might feel a little bit better and refreshed. But I think the quantification is what has been quite intriguing for athletes to understand how much this could potentially provide them in terms of a performance boost.
0: For sure, when everyone's mining so many different areas, and this sort of uh, at the time this uh, untapped area of just getting more sleep, which is uh, you know phenomenal in terms of these benefits, now. Um, You know, what about prior to even major competitions? What's happening with with athletes, if we dovetail into that, in terms of their sleep before big events or big competitions? Is it changing at all?
1: Well, I think the question is it shouldn't be just something that we prioritize and focus on prior to the big competition, right? This is hopefully an area of training that's fundamentally essential every night. (laughs) And the strategy really should be that it's about chronic long-term sleep habits. Of course, yes, the week leading up to an important competition – I think that could be a period in which we're specifically keying in on sleep duration but it's not just about the duration right we've t- we've talked a little bit it's about the quality of sleep and also for example body clock strategies if you're traveling or crossing time zones those are also key areas to consider
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I suppose I was going down the route of, um, you know, athletes not sleeping as well before big competitions. So maybe that idea of even accumulated sleep debt or even banking sleep before competitions, which you sort of touched on there with getting into a good sleep hygiene um, in terms of getting the regular hours in. Is there a a number of hours that, you know, if people are more high level, high performing athletes that they should be shooting for?
1: Sure. The recommendation for every healthy adult currently uh, is seven hours as a minimum threshold to prevent health risks and performance decrements. But there's obviously variation in that. I honestly feel terrible (laughs) on seven hours of sleep. I'm very grumpy. Uh, I feel much more refreshed uh, closer to the nine hours. So I know that that's actually closer to my... What we call individual sleep need. Um, for elite athletes, the expert recommendation seems to hover around 8 to 10 hours. And the interesting thing is that we know how much you think you're getting often can be quite different than objectively what athletes are, are obtaining at nighttime. Um, so that's sort of the the recommendation. I would say for someone who maybe is falling short of that recommendation of even minimally hitting seven hours, it's all about gradual changes. You know, we, we, we like gradual changes more than, um, quick jumps. So if you're someone who's getting six hours, no, don't jump to 10 hours tonight, but do that gradually, maybe a half hour more. Um, and what I found is sometimes pushing back the bedtime and going to bed a little bit earlier, um, can be a little bit more, uh, easy of a transition than shifting that wake up time, which sometimes we like to anchor and keep that the same every day. But, um, to answer your question about prior to the big competitions as well yes a lot of athletes struggle with sleep the night before competition and also after competition is quite common
0: terrific and so obviously if people are incorporating these habits ahead of time then that little blip in terms of not sleeping so well before competition is not a major issue but if people have a more of an accumulated sleep that i imagine that can be you know a major decrement for performance no on competition day
1: definitely that's why again this we stress it's about the chronic sleep habits right so if we know that leading up to a competition that night before is going to be quite difficult just by knowing this this athlete and that's something that they struggle with um, there have been some studies to suggest that even getting additional sleep and paying back some of that sleep debt in days leading up to a, an event that you will be definitely restricted in your sleep, that can provide benefits. Um, so whether or not we call that sleep banking, um, you know, we're yeah, I think that's a little controversial in terms of whether we think that you're actually surplusing that necessarily, but gotcha. there's definitely those measures in which we think that you can prevent certain decrements in a scenario in which we know you're not gonna get adequate sleep.
0: Fantastic and You know, certain athletes as well, and I remember in university, you know, rowers, swimmers, and even, you know, growing up, ice hockey players here in Canada getting up at really the crack of dawn uh, to train. What's going to happen here if athletes have to really get up at, you know, 5 a.m. sometimes earlier uh, to to get their training? And what's going to happen in terms of recovery and potentially performance?
1: Oh, man, the early morning workout sessions are, it pains me so much. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Because we know that depending on the age, right? We, our, our sleep architecture, so how uh, how much we need and the stages of sleep, um, that can change during the course of a life. So depending on what age you're, you're referring to, but definitely young adults can have what we call a delayed body clock where they're naturally going to want to go to bed and wake up later, right? So you probably remember during the college age or high school age, you're, you were more inclined to stay up late and then wake up later in the morning time. So that's... That can be problematic, right, if we have early morning training sessions where that could be cutting in to to getting sufficient sleep, right? So if those athletes are going to bed later and they're forced to wake up earlier, you know, I'll bet you're not getting the most productive work or lift session out of them. Um, I think that that's that's tricky because we're limited in sometimes the scheduling of training sessions for athletes. But one thing that I have suggested to teams or athletes where this is uh, a common scenario is that there have been studies to suggest that even scheduling Uh, Periodic recovery days to allow athletes to sleep in um, in the morning time has demonstrated benefits for recovery and and stress score. So while, yes, we we as sleep scientists very much reiterate that um, we want to have regular sleep and wake schedules, this is one helpful strategy that I think can be utilized from time to time
0: fantastic yeah it's great to have those um you know obviously in real world scenarios as i mentioned you know as you know people training sessions are at certain times and you, you got to work around it so it's great to have those strategies to be able to incorporate and this kind mm-hmm. of dovetails into your work obviously in professional sports but you know i've recently seen major league baseball you know we're in spring training now and i've seen that a lot of teams have started to shift the morning start times to later in the day um in terms of spring training so um can you speak to again to some of the benefits there if 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 teams or staff know that athletes are going to tend to get to bed later or as you mentioned you know the younger athletes will, will naturally tend to do that
1: sure so i think that's an interesting scenario particularly in major league baseball as you're referring to in spring training right now where yes there has been uh to my knowledge some shift in some of the scheduling to allow for a later start time in the morning i i'm obviously all for it <laughs> nice. um, baseball is a fascinating sport where they are playing in spring training you know early games at one o'clock and they have training sessions usually early in the morning, but then come the end of spring training, there's a sudden shift to night games. And it's a very harsh transition for many of the athletes and staff. And so I think this is one way that they're trying to accommodate a more gradual shift perhaps, but also recognize that, hey, a lot of these athletes probably are not getting adequate sleep and recovery time during the nighttime. And if it means even pushing back some of the the start times, half hour, an hour, I think they're starting to recognize that that can be beneficial in the long run.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how we're such creatures of habit, and if we perform at a certain time, then it's, um, you know, the the benefits of kind of trying to stay on that schedule, which obviously you've seen in your research is so profound. And um, if we circle back to what you mentioned before about circadian rhythms and and jet lag, Mm -hmm. I know you've worked in the NFL, and, you know, can you describe to folks, you know, what's the impact when someone's flying, let's say, west to east uh, versus east to west when we talk about the impacts, uh, potential impacts on performance?
1: Sure. So, using the NFL, as you mentioned, as an example, um, there was an interesting study that was actually one of the studies that inspired me to continue work in sleep and sports that looked at the impact of that circadian um, misalignment between East Coast versus West Coast teams. Um, So, The rule of thumb is that it takes one day per time zone that you cross to reacclimate your body clock, right? And it tends to be harder to shift your clock going eastward than it is going westward because our body clock is actually slightly longer than 24 hours. and, And we always need that exposure to the sun to sort of lock our body clocks in to our time zone Um, but the problem is a lot of athletes don't travel with adequate time before they have to play and so potentially you're competing jet lagged right especially if you're say going east to west or west to east right so the study in the nfl monday night football study looked at 25 seasons and and basically demonstrated that if you look at the night matchups between east coast and west coast teams regardless of the coast that you're playing on If you simply bet on the West Coast team, you'd beat the point spread 68% of the time.
0: That's incredible. Which
1: is, (laughs) right? It's pretty crazy. Um, And the reason why, as we talked about, is because of that body clock difference of three time zones where regardless of the coast, the West Coast team is still playing on a three-hour early body clock, right? And that is what has been... um, shown to to give a uh, statistical advantage because that late afternoon to early evening is, is the time during the day where performance is typically enhanced. Now we added actually 15 seasons onto that. And so now we lo- have looked at 40 seasons and used daytime games as the control group and essentially strengthened those findings that about two fold, more likely the West coast team will beat the point spread versus the East coast team. Um, That's just one study, but if you look at the literature, it is somewhat mixed on the jet lag effects because it often depends on, say, the type of performance outcome you're looking at, the type of sport you're looking at. But I think generally most of the sleep scientists agree that travel and jet lag strategies should be employed to at least provide the best chances for an athlete to succeed when they land in a new time zone and have to perform at their best.
0: Um, Yeah, 100%. I mean, I definitely know for myself and clients and athletes alike, as you mentioned, traveling west seems to be... You know so much easier in terms of adjusting and going from say toronto or new york to london england which you know now and obviously in the nfl they do um it's, it's just a lot harder so you know in terms of nfl teams that are doing that or, or anybody who's listening in who maybe travels for work or whatnot um you know what are some strategies if you are going to be doing those longer haul flights eastward um, to try to get yourself back on track as quick as you can
1: great question yes yeah. so I think what the mistake is for a lot of athletes or just working professionals is to get on the airplane, get to the new time zone, and then you try to adjust there. Which I fully understand that it is sometimes difficult to prepare in advance, but I actually think that that's the more advantageous strategy is that you should employ pre-flight strategies. What are you doing in flight as strategies and then post flight strategies and so some of those things that you can do prior to traveling east is for example starting to shift that body clock a couple of days before you fly and that does require going to bed say a half hour earlier and then waking up a half hour earlier but that can at least provide a more gradual transition than trying to jump three hours of a time zone the sunlight is one of the best stimulus and most powerful stimulus to our body clock And so getting that sunlight exposure in the morning time when you wake up can also be advantageous, even starting in in your home time zone and then definitely when you get to the East Coast time zone. So those are two that are are usually... um, the first line that we try to recommend and then thinking about in flight strategies trying to transition to the new time zone um being cognizant of of not napping so that your sleep drive will still be as high as possible when you get in and have to try and sleep at an earlier time on the east coast as well as being aware of you know hydration <laughs> and nutrition um being uh dehydrated can can definitely worsen jet lag
0: yeah i mean it's the uh, you- absolutely in terms of just plane travel especially long-haul plane travel being so dehydrating and obviously exposing mm-hmm. people more to to colds and flus and then you get the lack of sleep which is also you know having that impact on immunity so it's definitely a, a, a you know a multiple effect there in terms of uh, compromising immunity and whatnot so so great great advice there and in terms
1: of and- oops go ahead Oh, I was going to say, and just to add to that, you you touched on a great point, is getting uh, adequate sleep before you travel has also been associated with um, uh, less of a decrement in terms of uh, jet lag effects. So making sure you're not getting on the plane with three hours of sleep is probably the way to go. Um, and just like one actually applied example, I think that was actually fascinating recently. Uh, we just came out of the Olympics. And even prior to that, the Rio Olympics, I think that those were actually really interesting examples of how countries were trying to figure out how to adjust body clock. Uh, Because for I'm not sure if you're aware, like during the Rio Olympics, like the swim finals occurred at 10 p.m. to 1 in the morning. Yeah, very late. And then in Pyeongchang, yeah, they had the swim, or sorry, the, the skating finals were actually in the morning time. And I think a lot of the CS had to revolve around TV times. But because of that... A bunch of countries were like, what are we going to do? How do we adjust our training and our sleep schedules so that our athletes are prepared to perform at you know, midnight <laughs> and skate in the morning time? So I think those were very fascinating to see that they adjusted a lot of those schedules the weeks leading up to the Olympics.
0: Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, a testament to all the research and work that uh, people like yourself have done that that this is such a an area that people are cognizant of, um, you know, versus maybe even a decade ago or more that was a, you know, just people just sort of had to get on with it when they were there, didn't
1: they? I, I like to say we're getting a little bit smarter in, in our <laughs> strategies to try and help these athletes along to, to their goals.
0: Awesome. Well, you Transitioning over to the NBA, you know, I see the you know the red alerts and whatnot that you post when teams are going through heavy schedules or travel periods. Can you share a little bit with listeners, you know, what the implications are of fatigue and performance?
1: Sure. So this was a fun project. It was. Um, It's called the NBA Schedule Alert Project that's in collaboration with ESPN and and led by Baxter Holmes. And it was inspired, actually, by an observation that coaches intuitively knew that some games on the schedule were going to be difficult. And it wasn't because of the opponent. It was just because they understood that the scheduling circumstances could be um, quite grueling. So. One of our goals, or at least mine was in, in this, was to increase awareness of the impact of sleep and recovery. How does that integrate with travel and the body clock? And ultimately, does that have an impact on performance of these elite athletes? So um, this project was launched last year in the 2016-2017 season, and we identified 42 games that uh, teams may be at risk of losing based on only scheduling factors. So, for example, game density, travel, recovery, sleep opportunities, and it did not factor in strength of team or injuries or resting players or any other factors that are unrelated to to basically the schedule. Um, That prediction was about 57% of these games are going to be lost based on the prior 2015 to 2016 season. So in the end, last year, we, we actually ended up correctly predicting about 69% of those games. That's incredible. And there was, <laughs> there was a higher tier we called the Red Alert games, which were 17 of them that were at greatest risk and had a prediction of about a 78% chance of loss, which I know is, sounds crazy. Um, but we actually ended up at 76.5%. So that was that first season, which we thought was quite intriguing. and. So this year, we're back. We're back with Schedule Alert 2.0, and now there's 54 games that we've identified this year. Currently, to date, we've correctly predicted uh, 34 of the 30... uh, Sorry, 34 of 44 games, so 77%.
0: That's um, that's amazing. <laughs> I imagine the coaching staff now are just are just um, you know following you on Twitter to make sure that they're up to speed on which games they should be concerned you about.
1: Know, it, yeah, it's been fun to to see how readers have followed along and coaching and and teams um, sometimes have made um, comments about it along the way. You know, the part of it was to bring awareness to this area and if readers or listeners want to follow along, on ESPN we do post the games every month at the top of the month and then review what happened in the games prior. So we got ten left to go this season and, and hopefully we will be back next year if, if you're interested in following the project.
0: Yeah, I know it's amazing and obviously the, the results will so speak for themselves are incredible. Um, And while we're on the topic of NBA, obviously the the NBA rhythm, um, you know, shoot arounds, guys get back to hotels and that NBA nap, that midday nap that can sometimes for a lot of players extend quite, quite a long way to, you know, an hour and a half, three hours sometimes. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of naps and then potentially some of the pitfalls of people are napping, you know, too long or too close to game time?
1: Yes. The NBA nap is well known. (laughs) Uh, and sometimes I think it can be too long. I know you alluded to it being sometimes an hour and a half to three hours. And while in the big picture, I, am a fan of power naps, but a lot of times I'm recommending short 20 to 30 minute power naps and also considering when those are occurring. So the timing of it can be important. Usually I aim for the afternoon cause that's when we have this dip in our circadian rhythms or a yep, dip in that body sure. clock, so it's easier to fall asleep in the afternoon. A lot of people attribute that to uh, food coma, it's not that, <laughs> it's, a, it's a dip in circadian rhythms. But also pre-game, so this actually can depend on when your competition or game is scheduled. Yes, in the NBA, this is why it often happens in the afternoon in, in anticipation of a night game, um, but a lot of times these athletes, yes, are taking these long hour and a half, three hour naps, Um, And that's something we want to be mindful of. One, because you can wake up from these longer naps in those deeper stages of sleep and then feel more groggy and sluggish. I'm sure that that's ever happened to you, Mark, but you can feel more sluggish, right? And that's not how you want an athlete to go out. You don't know what day
0: it is. You don't know where you are.
1: Exactly. And so that's what we call sleep inertia. And and that's something I'm mindful of because um, we know that that can result in that grogginess and persist for a little while after. On top of that, when you take sometimes those two, three hour naps, it can make it harder for you to sleep at night, right? And so that decreases your drive to sleep. And then that can be a quite vicious cycle because then these athletes are staying up much later, they can't sleep. And then that leads to um, this kind of continuous cycle. So in some, I would say I am a fan of power naps. I think they just need to be utilized as more of an energy boost um, uh, and timed correctly. They are not a replacement for adequate sleep at night time, but they, they are a great strategy. And on top of that, have you ever tried the caffeine nap?
0: I've heard of the, the nappuccino I had Dr. Amy Bender on from the uh, CSI <laughs> Calgary. So she'd mentioned the, uh, the caffeine before the nap, but maybe you could describe it for listeners as well.
1: Sure. So caffeine, nap, nappuccino, uh, same thing. It's uh, a strategy that I, I think works magic. But on one hand, um, you have to be sleep-deprived enough to be able to fall asleep within 5 to 10 minutes. <laughs> so gotcha. first of all, that's not so great that's... Uh, status. But hey, here's a, here's a magic trick for you if that's uh, where you are right now. Definitely. But if you can fall asleep within 5, 10 minutes, then if you down a cup of coffee, caffeine takes about 15 minutes to kick in. You go take your 20-minute power nap, and then, bam, when you wake up, both the caffeine and the nap will have kicked in. And that's been shown to be actually more advantageous combined together than just caffeine alone or just the nap alone.
0: Yeah, really interesting for people who need to obviously get a bit of rest but also be able to to be on the ball to function maybe to play if they're athletes to, to really perform after that uh, rest period so that's a really interesting uh, uh, research and just kind of circling back again to the naps if a player is again sort of accumulated more of a sleep debt is there some scenarios where you would uh, you know advise a bit longer naps if it was uh, not impeding their ability to fall asleep at night is there a certain range or, or time frame or would it be more trying to just add more of their sleep in terms of um, you know the sleep
1: through the night I think that the goal that I try to recommend to my athletes is definitely consolidated sleep at night, gotcha. and that would be the the biggest um, the biggest win in my in my book to try and encourage them to do that. But yes, there are scenarios where, say, they're traveling on the road, had an early morning flight, so we know that they weren't getting sufficient sleep the prior night, and sometimes I will recommend the longer naps at an hour and a half. Um, And I try to do that gradually, too, in terms of reducing naps. So if someone is currently taking two to three hour naps, I'm not saying necessarily to cut that down immediately to 20 minutes. Uh, I like to do that as a gradual process. So there is some wiggle room in that that I do recommend for that middle ground of an hour and a half in scenarios like that where you're either transitioning or say we know you didn't get adequate sleep the prior night because of travel um, sometimes you have to be creative <laughs> in, in how you get to these naps and into the very packed schedule for athletes.
0: Well, I definitely share the same belief of just trying to, to nudge people towards things and add things in in a you know um, slow manner or a drip feed type manner. And of course, you know one of my main areas of focus is nutrition. And if we can talk now about maybe nutrition and sleep and how does um, how does one's nutrition impact sleep, in particular, if we kind of stay on the the basketball NBA theme, I know a lot of players. Um, unfortunately after games might get you know sugar cravings hunger cravings and you know knocking back bags of oreos or unfortunately snack foods and stuff how might that impact sleep and and what types of perhaps nutrition strategies might be uh, superior for them
1: this is a very fascinating area (laughs) i think there's a a very it's still very early in i think a lot of the research and the integration between sleep and nutrition i'm hoping more is going to come down the road i I find this particular area very interesting because like you said, I have seen NBA players like roll out of the game with huge pizzas and like spicy wings. I'm like, really? Are you going to eat that right now? <laughs> um, and I think a lot of them maybe sometimes not always cognizant that what they're eating could potentially affect their sleep and their recovery afterwards. I think athletes are starting to wise up to that a little bit more about nutrition and hydration effects on their subsequent sleep, but we still have a ways to go. Um, You know, we don't advocate necessarily a huge meal right before you're going to go to bed, but obviously it's important to fuel properly after exercise and post-game. I recommend more of a protein and a complex carb as a pre-sleep snack or or post-game meal in particular. We don't really want, you know, big meals that are heavy and fried, uh, to be sitting in their in these athletes right before they're gonna head to bed. But we also For wanna sure. make sure that they're not waking up during the nighttime because they haven't fueled properly um, during uh, the post post game part Um, i think that there are some earlier studies and small studies to suggest that some of uh, the nutritional habits or choices of what they're eating potentially could affect sleep architecture and also some of the studies i think are starting to suggest about timing of meals and how that potentially could benefit uh, reducing jet lag and trying to um, integrate that into circadian strategies
0: yeah fantastic um, tips there and You know, one of the things I sometimes see in athletes is, you know, wanting to get hydrated and and consuming uh, a lot of beverages and almost, you know, over consuming effectively in the evening. And now they're getting up and and throughout the night to go to the bathroom. Um, Is that that something that you see at all? And uh, what kind of advice or, you know, would you give your athletes?
1: Yes, it is actually sometimes ridiculous. I see some athletes just like chugging down water before bed because either they just didn't hydrate well during the daytime or they're in fear of not um, being hydrated during the nighttime. Uh, they just but go then, for it before bed, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, you're going to wake up four times in the middle of the night when you're, you're hydrating, you know, a gallon of water before bed. Um, no, clearly important to be hydrated during the daytime but I do recommend trying to cut down some of your fluids that hour before bed. Uh, Depending on your nutritional goals, um, I have talked to a number of uh, registered dietitians and and we seem to be on the same page That's depending on what those nutrition goals are, you can consider an electrolyte instead of uh, pure water before bed. Um, Also partnering that maybe with some carbs so that'll be better resorbed into your muscle and uh, that can has worked for a number of my athletes. The other thing as simple as it sounds is to stop by the bathroom as part of your wind down routine because if we can cut out even one awakening of, you know, three times you have to wake up in the middle of the night, I consider that a win.
0: 100% and sometimes I think, you know, we're so, you know, even when I've got a two kids under four and and obviously they're into routines. And that's one of the things we do before bed every night. And so sometimes I, it makes me smile that, you know, in elite athletes or in our clients, we have to sort of do the same things of reinforce these rhythms and these routines that we've, we don't even realize that we started with at such a young age. And um, if we dovetail over now,
1: we do. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. I don't understand. Sometimes we're so good about it. Sometimes with our kids and parents seem to be very good about having that routine and that process to wind down and making sure that their kids have this um, as an important part of how they approach their their night and prepare to sleep. And somehow we lose it along the way as we get to the adult.
0: Drop the ball for sure. Um, And yeah, I just want to touch on longevity. I was obviously Roger Federer, if we shift over to tennis, um, obviously winning multiple majors in the past few seasons. And he's someone who's definitely prioritized sleep, saying he aims for nine to 10 hours of sleep opportunity per night. Um, so can you touch on? Obviously, we've spoken a little bit about the importance of recovery, but that sort of longevity. Uh, do we require more sleep as as we get older? And, and and is this is this a real secret weapon for for Roger? And, and as he's getting older,
1: <laughs> it's funny you bring up Roger Federer because um, I believe earlier a couple years ago he actually would not comment about his sleep. Because I think he, there was, I think, one comment about how he really felt like it was such a competitive advantage and that many of his other competitors had not really leveraged this, this quote-unquote secret weapon, that he actually didn't want to discuss this openly. And I think since then, he's been a little bit more open to talking about it, but, you know. It's the competitor, he's not, right? He doesn't want to give up yeah. his secrets. Exactly. He's not the only one, obviously, that's talked about the impact of sleep. For sure. Um, you know, Tom Brady talks about how that's helped him in his career longevity. But I think some of these athletes, obviously, at the top of their game, they recognize that, you know, their bodies are not 21, and they respond differently, and the recovery is different um, at their age, which is uh, in their 30s, or, you know, I think Tom Brady's closer to his 40s now. You know, we don't necessarily... We don't think that we necessarily require more sleep as we age or even less sleep. What happens is that the type of sleep can change as you age. So, for example, particularly in males, you start to lose that deep sleep at nighttime. So the percentage of it goes down as you age. So if you recall how you felt so refreshed with this really deep sleep when you were 20 and you feel like you don't get that same amount. Definitely as you get older into your 40s, 50s, 60s, you start to lose more of that. And so you you honestly aren't getting as much of that deep sleep anymore. We still think you need the same amount. You just happen to be in lighter sleep. And so sometimes we'll feel like you're waking up more um, and that quality isn't the same. But we still think that you require duration wise, um, similar to what it was when you were 20.
0: Is that why the power naps uh, have become, or I feel like as I'm getting older, the power (laughs) naps become even more uh, important and and invaluable in terms of having those in the daily routine?
1: Definitely. We all need that boost once in a while, and it's a great strategy.
0: Terrific. Well, I know obviously now for for so many athletes and coaches, you know, sleep is on their mind. However, the application of a lot of this stuff is still, uh, you know, when I see athletes, is still uh, not to the level of. Of what I would like, and let alone, I'm sure what you would like. Um, so what are some of the big rocks, these sort of fundamentals that you'd like to see, um, or that you advise your athletes in terms of helping to promote you know better sleep duration or sleep quality?
1: I think I look at this as three different buckets, each of them important. I think sometimes we stress sleep duration the most, which, yes, is a fundamental necessity to have um, a, a baseline of, of adequate sleep every night, that it would be bucket one. Um, but I think we also need to emphasize that it's also about bucket two of sleep quality and bucket three of the timing of our sleep. So to kind of touch on each of those with the first one with sleep duration, we already talked about minimally needing those seven hours, eight to 10 for elite athletes. We discussed a little bit about that gradual increase if you're someone who's falling short of that. Um, I found that that advancing the bedtime is usually the easiest, especially if your morning trainings are set, as we mentioned, with that goal of being nocturnal sleep and not really utilizing naps as much to reach that. Um, But I think that has to be, obviously, the fundamental bucket of adequate duration on a day-to-day basis. In terms of sleep quality, I think one of the the big rocks here is having an approach and a routine to prepare to sleep. And I know it sounds like a really small mindset um, to change, but usually sleep for many individuals is just this afterthought, right? That they jump into bed whenever it happens. Um, But when athletes actually have a dedicated wind-down routine and, and you take your pick, whether you like stretching or reading or prayer uh, whatever you choose to help prioritize sleep, I feel like that really has a big impact on the quality of our rest, and it helps athletes really connect the dots of what's happening to optimize their sleep at nighttime, and then ultimately what happens, and subsequently during the daytime. Um, another couple of other big rocks in the quality bucket, I would say, is powering down technology is a big one because we're plugged into all of our phones and computers. Absolutely, (laughs) (laughs) excessively. Yeah, and that can affect the quality. Your sleep environment is a key key area to look at to make sure that it's a cave. It's really dark, it's quiet, it's cool, it's comfortable. Many of us are not always uh, as cognizant about our caffeine and alcohol take and how that's going to affect our sleep. And then physical activity is another area that I think is a big key aspect of the quality of rest you're going to get. And then lastly, that timing bucket of sleep, too, is going to be important. We are all probably guilty of going to bed at different times during the week at, um, and then shifting that wake-up time Or say, we keep a good routine and schedule during the weekdays, but then we shift it much later on the weekends, and then we end up with social jet lag. Yeah, <laughs> so definitely. Those are yeah some of my big rocks and trying to emphasize these different areas and what you can do within each of them because ultimately you should be trying to address at least something in each of these buckets simultaneously.
0: Fantastic, Sherry. This is really, really phenomenal, phenomenal insights. And you know, I want to respect your time here. So before we wrap up, last couple questions for you. Mm -hmm. Um, The first on a personal note, you know, can you share with listeners a little bit about how you start your day? Do you have a routine? Are you a coffee person? You're obviously uh, very busy with your different uh, tasks and duties.
1: Sure. How do I start my day? I, let's see, I start my day. I do have a similar wake up time. Um, I'm more of a night person. So we have what's called our chronotype. If you're sometimes naturally a morning person, sometimes naturally an evening person, I'm more of a night person, and so I've adjusted my work schedule in which I can stay up a little bit later, um, and then I sleep in a little bit later than the typical, say, 9 to 5 job. But my day starts waking up at the same time. I hydrate, and I have some water before I start my day. At some point in that morning, I'll also grab some coffee, Sleep scientists can drink coffee. It's still allowed.
0: Okay, good. I was gr- glad you checked that off. I'm, we're big coffee fans here, so that's yeah. that's good to know.
1: <laughs> so coffee gets in there uh, in the morning time, but I usually try to avoid caffeine in the later afternoon to evening period. Um, but yeah, I start my day with a great breakfast. My coffee get some hydration in there and, and, and get ready to go.
0: Fantastic. And of course, the last question here, you know, your sleep routine, end of the day, can you share with listeners a little glimpse into how you wind down and prepare for that deep and restful sleep?
1: My wind down. So what I've chosen as my wind down that helps me relax is either stretching, if I've had a really busy day, and I use that time to specifically process my thoughts and thinking through everything that I have to do the following day. Um, That gives me, you know, 10 minutes to dedicate that time specifically to making sure that I've allowed that process to occur so it's not going to happen and have a racing mind when I'm in bed. And then I usually wind down with reading. It's a little bit of like you time, right? And um, allows me to also uh, just protect that time to make sure that I have a transition because we all have really busy and crazy days. And, and I think without a little bit of that structured approach, um, I know I would fall into you know just making it an afterthought. So I try to make sure that's part of my <sighs> wind down. Um, and then put my phone into sleep mode, uh, or yeah, sleep mode or do not disturb mode. And so that I won't be bothered by texts and emails that come through in the nighttime.
0: Awesome. Well, listen, Sherry, this is a fantastic, massive, massive, thank you for taking the time uh, today. Where can people stay connected with you on, on social media and where can people keep up with all your fantastic uh, work and research?
1: Probably the best way to reach me or follow what we're doing is on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is Sherry underscore Ma. So that's C-H-E-R-I underscore M-A-H. That would probably be the best way to reach me. I'm also on Instagram, same handle, Sherry underscore Ma. Um, But usually I post most of the most recent findings and, and latest on Twitter
0: fantastic we'll definitely include those links with the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast sherry thanks so much again for taking the time out thanks again for everyone else tuning in if you have any questions for sherry or want to leave a comment on today's episode we'd love to hear from you on facebook instagram or twitter at dr bubs and of course if you enjoy the show please subscribe and share with friends thanks again and see you guys all next week